Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Before I read our passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer that He would bless the reading and preaching of His Word. Our Father and our God, we come before You again this morning. Uh, we, we ask in the name of Christ that You would give us the same Spirit that You gave the author of this great uh, work of wisdom, We pray, dear Lord, that your spirit would dwell within our hearts to receive this wisdom, that we might have this glimpse into the unseen world, uh, not to tickle our ears, not to uh, uh, stir our fancy, but rather to instruct us in the heavenly ways of your government that we might know that all things are in your hand, that we might know that our trials are not arbitrary and random, that they are firmly under your counsel. And we ask that this truth would flourish in our hearts to perseverance, to joy in the midst of tribulation, to that firm and confident hope in our King, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from the book of Job, chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence cometh thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and excueth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Has not thou made a hedge about him? and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side. Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. The Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thy hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. Amen. We have here a glimpse, a window into a world that we do not normally see, uh, into a world that is not normally open to us, a world that even in Scripture is, is given in only glimpses and in uh, partiality. There are many reasons for this. Uh, we should note and, and note quite plainly that this is still given in the language of Revelation. This is still given in the language of, of mankind that these glimpses are molded to our understanding. Uh, that I'm not saying that we don't take this literally in the sense of plainly. We, we do. Uh, but we don't uh, take it woodenly as, as an exact picture. Uh, this notion that, uh, that, that, uh, that the Lord keeps court in a, in a spatial and local sense uh, is, is foreign to the picture here. Uh, 
But it is nevertheless an important aspect of the revelation of the book of Job that you and I see what is going on behind the scenes. Now, it's important also to note that Job does not have this picture. We have no indication in the book of Job that Job ever understands, is ever aware, or ever knows about this counsel that happens in heaven. The only supposition that would allow that would be if Job himself is the author. And there's no indication, uh, the way that it closes out the book does not give us indication that he is uh, also the author of it. That it was written by another. Uh, that does not affect the, um, the significance uh, for Job of his meeting of the Lord with the, in the whirlwind. That is still quite miraculous. It is still quite important. But it does mean that the message of the book of Job, while there is an aspect of it for Job himself, there is a greater aspect for those that read it. And this is an important part of it. Now, after the first two chapters, we don't see this heavenly court again. Uh, it is a part of the preface of the book. Uh, it is part of the picture that sets everything in motion. But it's important for us that we always maintain the, the remembrance of what is going on in the heavenly courts. Now, this is not to say that what happens in the heavenly courts uh, bears upon Job's anguish except as the origin of it. It doesn't explain it. All that Job is concerned about, uh, all that Job is upset about, all that bothers Job, is the fact that he seems to have been judged by God, that evil things have happened to him, and that his own sin was not the cause of those things, and why the Lord was letting him suffer, is not explained or answered in what we just see here. Because those are questions for Job. But one of the important things that we need to understand that does relate to Job is that the answer to Job's question is multifaceted. That God does more than just one thing when he does anything. That what God intends to Satan is what he intends for Satan. But what God intends to Job is what he intends for Job. And those things, while come into contact here, are conceptually quite different. The trial that, that Satan proposes to the Lord and the issue of it is different from the trial that Job himself is demanding of the Lord. That, that he be tested and he be vindicated. Uh, however, uh, part of the vindication of Job uh, shows us, when compared with the, the vindication of the Lord against Satan, a fuller view of the Lord's providence. And so we're given, as a gift... Uh, this world to know that the, the world is much larger than we can see, than, much larger than we can perceive. Uh, Western uh, philosophy, quite rightly, it tends to be reductionalistic, uh, tends to reduce the causes of things to their bare minimum so that we can understand we're a people of finite minds. And in order to understand something, we have to reduce complexity to simplicity. 
complexity to simplicity. And the tendency of Western philosophy, particularly as it has abandoned the Lord, has been to uh, deny the supernatural, to deny the unseen world. Now, the picture in Scripture, though, while in the context of the day is, is quite simple, is nevertheless that regardless of the simplicity that we see in the world, and simplicity here is only a relative simplicity, that, that the, when we deal with the Lord and the ways of the Lord in the world, we don't have to go into all the machinations of the angels and the demons. It is enough for us to go to the sovereignty of the Lord. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot going on in between heaven and earth, if you will. That there isn't a lot going on spiritually that we cannot see. And as I mentioned, we get glimpses of this periodically. Uh, We have one here now. And we're going to see in this two things mainly. The work and the malice of Satan. And the sovereign purpose of God even in that. And so first we look at, at Satan coming into the court of the sons of God. Now here, sons of God is a reference to the angels. It's the only time in Scripture that they are so denominated explicitly. Uh, we get chapter 38, verse 7, speaks of the same. Although uh, very often the angels are mentioned as the court of the Lord in various and sundry different places. And in... Uh, in Daniel, when there is the angel of the Lord in the furnace, uh, the Babylonians speak of him as one like one of the sons of God or the son of God. And of course, that is one of those situations that may or may not have a bearing here because we don't know if the angel of the Lord in the presence with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was not the pre-incarnate Christ, which Daniel seems to indicate. Um, you do get in Genesis... Uh, the sons of God, seeing the sons of men and, and being infatuated with them. But in the context there, Moses never calls the angels the sons of God. And the context there is clearly, he's talking about the two patriarchal lines, the lines of Cain and the lines of Seth. And he's talking about a problem that besets mankind after the flood. The tendency of the people of God to intermingle and disperse their righteousness by becoming mixed with the nations and coming mixed with the heathen, as it were. I just want to put those out of the way in our nomenclature. We want to focus here, not get distracted. Um, But we have Satan here in the court and the councils of God. Uh, This would be ironically mimicked later uh, as, as the medieval church uh, would make sure that in the Roman Curia, the, the council of the Pope, there was always somebody to advocate for Satan. Uh, we call that the devil's advocate unto this day. Um, that they would mimic that heavenly position. Uh, but nevertheless, we have Satan, and he's named here as Satan. The Hebrew word is adversary, uh, or accuser. The idea is he's the one that brings a case to court. He's the prosecutor, we might say. Uh, we, if we were speaking in today's language, if Job was revealed to us today, we would say the prosecutor comes into the, amongst the, the people uh, or the sons of God. And that is what he is, and that's what we see him doing. He's an adversary, he's an accuser, uh, and, and he works really hard at his job. In, chapter, in verse 7, the Lord asked him, 
not out of ignorance, but as a, a sort of a calling him to account for what he's done. Just like when the Lord went into the Garden of Eden and, and asked Adam what he had done. Not because he was ignorant, but, uh, but that he might get Adam to own up to what he was doing. And Satan answers, I've gone to and fro in the earth from walking up and down in it. Uh, we, this is the language of diligence. It's a language that we've already seen played out, by the way, when we read in First uh, Peter, and Peter picks up on this imagery here. In First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, uh, the devil means the slanderer. Um, so you have your adversary in the court of law, that is Satan, the devil, is as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Peter puts a very definite negative connotation to what Satan... Satan's not feigning that he's doing good, but he's also not owning up to doing evil. Uh, He's being diligent uh, uh, there. Uh, In Luke chapter 22, Jesus, on the night in which he is betrayed, warns uh, of Peter. That same one, he says in uh, Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 31... Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Uh, that there is a certain sense in which uh, Satan is always on the prowl for a victim. And that the great evil principle in the world, the, ev- the principle of rebellion, though when I say principle, I don't mean an abstract sort of force. I do mean a concentrated, a personified, uh, a conscious a worker of iniquity is seeking to destroy, seeking to accuse, seeking uh, to undo. And, uh, you know, he... He works where he can in the world. And Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we're told that the great uh, adversary Satan was cast out of heaven. And he's confined to the earth. This is why Jesus, uh, well, the apostle calls him the prince of the power of the air. Uh, the idea is, speaking uh, in that old terminology of the heavens, you remember Paul was in the third heavens. Uh, the first heaven is the atmosphere. The sky. The second heavens is what we see at night, the cosmos. The third heaven is the spiritual realm of the divine. Uh, Satan has no power in the other two, but he does have power in the world. He was given the world of sinners. And and that is where he reigns. And that is where the serpent does his great uh, evil that... Uh, even we see this kind of pictured uh, physically in the, in the punishment of the, the snake in the garden that he grovels in the earth. Well, Satan's going about groveling in the earth. Now, he views himself as quite uh, Lord there. Uh, when he tempts Jesus and takes him and promises all the, the kingdoms of the world in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, he says, these are all given to me. He reinterprets his punishment as his gift and his right. Uh, This is the way Satan always, he's a deceiver of himself as much as he is a deceiver of anyone else. But within his bounds, he is diligent to do his great undoing work. And notice how he handles Job. Now, in verse 8, the Lord brings Job to the attention of Satan. Uh, 
quite possibly, probably, and even implied in the text, is that Jesus, excuse me, that the Lord is, uh, is anticipating what Satan plans to propose. That it is the Lord that is, is confirming what good that is already spoken about Job in chapter 1. Everything that's said in chapter 1 is repeated, chapter 1, verse 1 is repeated in verse 8. Or that he was a man perfect and upright, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Uh, that there is also, though, spoken uh, that there is none not like him on the earth. That just as Noah in his day was that lone righteous man, so Job in his day was that, that man that fully conformed to that faith uh, that is given. A man not sinless, but with integrity as we saw last week. And what does Satan do? Satan attacks Job on the basis of God's favor to him. And we see, by the way, Satan earning his name here. Satan is coming to this as a prosecutor. Satan is coming to this as an accuser. He's looking, he can't gainsay what the Lord says about his fearing God. He can't speak against his perfection and his upright behavior. So he will go into the invisible aspect and and attribute mercenary motives to him. Does Job fear thee for aught? He says in verse 9. Hast not thou made a hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side, and thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and the substance is increased in the land. But if you would put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, he will curse thee to thy face. Job attack, Satan attacks Job on the basis of God's favor to him. You know, even the Lord's blessings then become a tool in the hand of Satan. Become an avenue of an attack. Uh, the Lord does hedge his saints. In Psalm 34, 7, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. We see this particularly in Elisha's time when the servant comes and says, The, the army of Syria has rounded us. And, and Elisha prays, Open thou my servant's eyes. And he opens his eyes and uh, he sees the valley hemmed in about with the host of heaven. That's literally the, uh, the image that is given in Psalm 34, 7 about what the Lord does to protect His people. That He's promised to do that. And He's also promised to bless them richly. We saw this in Psalm 128 last time. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, uh, that, walk not, that walk in His ways. And Job had that. He had cattle, he had children, he had honor and nobility amongst the people and a reputation Proverbs 10.22, The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow in it. Uh, Meaning that those that are rich in the Lord uh, don't have the same sorrows that, uh, that those who have riches by other means have. And, and these are the Lord's blessings. And these are the Lord's gifts to those that love him. And Satan is almost accusing the Lord of creating hypocrites. Now, if this was to follow through, if Satan was able to stand in this, then there would be and could be no reward for righteousness. 
And if we think that this isn't a, a line of, of reasoning that wouldn't actually find a whole lot of popularity, it should be noticed that after the Second Great Awakening in New England, and one of the things that really destroyed the, the evangelical faith in New England was this notion that if we serve God for anything but uh, selfless reasons, uh, a, true, a complete um, altruism, that our faith is somehow uh, diminished and impure. And a minister would not be ordained unless he could confess that he was willing to be damned for the glory of Christ Jesus. It's interesting to note that Jesus never makes such a demand of his people. That it almost has the ring of Satan in it. And that there ought, we ought not and we should not ever desire damnation. The Lord has put it as an awful thing. It is a paradox to be damned for the glory of Christ if we trust in the Lord. Now for the wicked who do not seek to glorify Christ, to be glorify Christ by their damnation is a completely different thing. But it, it's wrong for us to pit the blessings of the Lord against His mercies and against our duty to the Lord. But this is one of those temptations of a human logic that Satan will latch onto. And Satan latches onto it here. He's saying, if you, you really shouldn't be blessing the godly, because that just makes them mercenaries in one of mine. What you, the implication is you should bless the, heathen, the, the ungodly, because then your love would be shown to be completely uh, disinterested. He's calling the question not just Job, but God's righteousness and integrity. Uh, Satan weaves webs. It should be noticed in the answer to this question. Uh, Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 4, gives a pretty good uh, reason, uh, answer to this. In Isaiah 5, 1 through 4, the Lord is chastising Israel for their disobedience. And, he, and he's basically saying, I have planted a vineyard. I have hedged that vineyard in. I have caused it to grow. I have tended it with my prophets. And should I not expect fruit of obedience from her? Should I not expect my mercy to bring forth the fear of the Lord? And he uses that language. And of course. Uh, the accusation of Satan has no bearing on the issue. But this is just the way that Satan works. But we also see his malice here. Because win or lose, Satan is going to enjoy doing that which he is known most for. For being a devil and an adversary and, and a wicked person. You know, if he wins, if Job curses God because his goods were taken away from him, then, then the devil probably doesn't really believe this will happen, but maybe uh, the one that is incomparable in the earth, verse 8, is shown to be really one of Satan's. And Satan rules completely. But if he loses, as he's like to do, nevertheless, he's taken the most godly, uh, God-fearing man in the world and made him miserable. So there's that. And that is ultimately the best that the devil can hope for, to work against the people of God. Uh, but, but that's what he wants to do. And we should understand that in the heart of every temptation is this challenge to the authority and the Godhead of God himself. Think of the very first sin. Hath God really said? 
And when he says that, he's challenging what God says, but he's also saying he's wanting to keep you from this fruit because it would do you good, and God is holding you down. If you've read the articles this week and you see the, in the Huffington Post or wherever this, this soccer mom from New England, uh, as if she wasn't already at the Temple of Satan without knowing it, has decided to join the Temple of Satan because it teaches a certain um, autonomy and, and is anti-authoritarian and is anti-this uh, imagined fear of the theocracy that's just waiting in the wings to be put up. Uh, it's, it shows that just it's, it's full of this very, it's aptly named the Temple of Satan. Not that they believe that there is a Satan. But they take the good things and the beautiful things of holiness and call it evil. And take the evil things and the things that degrade and destroy us and call it good and liberty. And this is how the Lord works. Uh, no, this is how the Satan works. And, and in his temptations, there's first the calling into question the Godhead of God. But also, a certain sort of sense to do you evil. And we see this anytime we have succumbed to temptation and we have found the promised forbidden fruit to be bitter to our taste, to bring so much more regret, to bring us shame and not good. This is the way of sin. It ruins those whom it deceives. Because Satan is malicious and he's a liar. The strength of him, though, is that he can accuse. Let's go to the other great figure in this court, and that is the Lord God himself. And we see here God pictured in all his sovereignty. We have the court of the sons of God, and they're all coming to give account unto God, including Satan. The Lord's providence uh, we have in this picture is not arbitrary. And it's important. This is why we have these pictures, by the way. Uh, that sometimes if we think of them in a rational and with strict doctrinal precision, uh, they seem to degrade God from his absolute sovereignty and, and make him one that's, that's taken this advice and, and is receiving these counsels and all this sort of thing. But we miss the purpose of it. Uh, the purpose of it is to show that God is in control and authoritative in his providence. This we see here when he gives even permission to Satan but that it's not an arbitrary, capricious sort of power. In the Middle East in those days, power was exercised. We didn't have constitutional monarchs. We had absolute kings that often viewed themselves as deified gods, Pharaoh, but also those of Samaria and Babylon to various and sundry degrees, those in Canaan. And, God, and, and sometimes these, these decrees contradicted each other. Sometimes these decrees uh, created all sorts of confusion. And in no place did, in these decrees did it equate all humanity as one before the divine. But here we find that God is not arbitrary. He doesn't exercise his power willy-nilly. He doesn't seek his own glory in such a way that it has no regard for that which he created. But that there is a reason to how he operates. And that he himself is not governed by a higher authority, but he is governed by his own nature, which is true, good, and just. 
And so we picture God's authority is always given in the form of counsel. We see this in the opening words of Scripture. God said, let us make man. Let us do this. Let us do that. He wasn't just bringing absurdities into existence. Uh, He had a purpose. There's a reason. There's a form. There's a logic in all that he creates. And this is one reason why, by the way, science is possible. Because there's a coherency to the world. It fits together. There's no part of it that's kind of off to one side. That it might look miraculous to us or it might look quite different and alien to us. But ultimately, everything fits under the sovereignty of God when we recognize the unity of the Creator. This is seen in Genesis chapter 28, verses 12 and 13, when uh, Jacob, exiled from his family, is going into the land of Haram to, to get a wife, and he sleep, lays himself down on the pillar of stone. He's cheated his brother out of his birthright. It looks like that he will always be a stranger in the land of promise, and that he will not have rest. And God comes to him. But first he sees, before he sees that, he sees a ladder into heaven with angels going up and down it. It has no bearing on what the Lord tells him, but it reinforces the authority of God that he is ruling wisely in the midst of Jacob's confusion. He sees these emissaries going up into heaven to receive commands and going out to execute them. And that's, that's what we get basically here. Uh, The sons of God coming into the court to give an account of what they've been doing and and presumably going away with whatever the Lord has given them to do. Uh, We see this only in Satan himself, but presumably this is what's going on with all of them. Uh, We see this uh, picture uh, in uh, this window into the world in 1 Kings 22 to to, uh, explain why... Uh, the, the conquerors of Jerusalem are going to actually give adherence to bad counsel and not good counsel. Uh, this is the, or actually the northern kingdom. This is the way the Lord works. And this is uh, pictured for us by these glimpses. This is pictured for us when we have the captain of the Lord's host appear with Joshua. Not that the angels fought in the war in a literal sense, but that we know that he conquered by the divine decree. This is why the birth of Jesus Christ. There's the angelic host making sure that mankind knows that this is according to his will. That this fact that he's in a manger doesn't at all matter to the kingdom of heaven. All powers, including Satan's, we see in this passage, must give their account unto the Lord God. The Lord says, what have you been doing, Satan? And Satan has to answer. I've been going to and fro throughout the world. But we also see how Job will, by the Lord himself, is being brought into this this test between uh, Satan and God. Uh, Job is brought forth not at Satan's instigation, but at the Lord's instigation in verse 8. And it is by only by the Lord's permission in verse 12 that Satan goes forth from the presence of the Lord to do as he has uh, challenged the Lord to do. And so the trial here in heaven is who is the liar? 
is, is Satan or is God? God has is, God is singled out Job as, as a godly man. And Satan has accused him and slandered him as a mercenary man. As a man that is only good as long as the times are good. A man like the seed sown on the shallow ground that as soon as the sun rises and the heat bears down upon him, he will wither away and be fruitless. So who's correct? Who's the liar? We all know the answer to that. Satan's the liar. Uh, Whether Job stands in his integrity or not, whether in Job's complaint he trespasses the bounds of of perfection is irrelevant as long as he doesn't uh, curse God, as long as he's seeking his uh, support, as long as he's seeking his good from the Lord God, Satan is found a liar. And throughout the book of Job, regardless of how we evaluate what he says, we will find that he's always looking for his vindication and the Lord alone. That's his integrity. That's his patience. But then comes the question, and here we have to kind of get out of this passage to answer it. But the question comes up in this passage to us who are reading it, to kind of are familiar with the story as a whole. Is Job then a pawn? And that's a good question. Are we merely pawns in a great debate in heaven? I submit to you that if we answered that yes, we would be doing God no great glory. In fact, we would be contradicting what God himself says and reveals even in the book of Job. We also are on dangerous ground in elevating Satan not to a courtier who comes and has to receive his order and give account unto the Lord God, but rather as to a rival God. As if this trial between Satan and God is actually in suspense. There was a heresy, there was even a religion, or it still exists in the dark corners of the world of Asia, uh, called Manichaeism. They could believe just that, that there was a force of good and a force of evil, and that they were equally matched. And, and what earth was, was the neutral battleground between the two forces, and whoever won, uh, won for eternity. You could see how that would destroy all faith and hope, because we wouldn't be sure of who won the battle. We see how it would undermine completely uh, the great gospel of Jesus Christ because he is already victorious. And it obviously dishonors the potentate of God and his power and authority. So we, we answer no. Job is not a pawn. And in fact, the book of Job doesn't, as I've already mentioned, concern itself too much with the outplay. It never comes back to this. It will come back to this in chapter 2 a little bit. Uh, But it never comes back to this at any great length. Because there is another purpose of the Lord with Job. Job didn't elevate, uh, God didn't elevate Job to be the victim of Satan's malice. Now, that was one thing that he is doing, but that's not the purpose of the Lord in doing it. The Lord has an other agenda with Job himself. And the best way to know that agenda is to see how it ends up. And if you turn to the back, back page of Job, uh, Job 42, uh, we will see this. 
Fortunately, there are some translation problems here. Uh, they don't bear completely upon the issue, but they do, they do kind of give a certain um, negative sense. In verse 5 and 6, I have heard thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor, most translations say myself there, that is completely supplied by the translators, it's not in the Hebrew. Um, what he's abhorring is not himself. He's abhorring what comes before, his hearing of the hearing by ear, his former faith that was not personal but more about the Lord, and adheres to the, the, what he abhors, he rejects that former stuff, he adheres to his new knowledge, and he repents, or rather relents, and can even be translated as it is in the book of Job and other places, comforts himself in dust and ashes. The Lord never accuses Job of sin. In fact, he vindicates Job. He tells his friends, Job is the one that has spoken correctly of myself. There's nothing in and of this situation that Job needs to repent of, except perhaps in, in the more literal sense, relenting of his former anguish and delighting in his newfound faith in the Lord God. Now, I'm not going to anticipate the whole book and tell you exactly what that faith is founded in. It's important to note that the Lord himself never answers Job directly. That when he answers Job, he's answering, he's giving his own, you're looking for this, this is who I am. And it's in that knowledge that Job finds comfort. Job goes through an awful situation. We could also go and ask, well, what, what did this trial do for the children of Job that were killed? That we're not given any indication. They're not the subject of the book, and it's only speculation. Uh, we have to understand that if God had a purpose with Satan in this, and he had a purpose with Job in this, he had a purpose for the seven sons and the three daughters, he had a purpose for Job's wife, he had a purpose for the three friends, he had a purpose even from Elihu, who stuck, sticks his head up towards the end of the book. He has a purpose for us that are reading it. But what the writer wants us to know, what Revelation wants us to know, what the Holy Spirit wants us to focus on is the situation of Job. And in here we find, not in this passage particularly, but in the whole of the book, that while he is overthrowing Satan, that he is teaching Job something uh, that it was high time Job learned. That God is his God even in the midst of his suffering. That, that it is right and good to know the Lord and it's valuable to do so. If you turn back to 1 Peter, remember Peter himself goes through similar sorts of trials. Remember what Peter says about trials. In verse 7 of chapter 1, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found in the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That trials are for our good. That he is working good in them. When Satan desired to uh, sift Peter, and he does so by having him deny, deny the Lord three times, uh, Jesus also tells him in verse 32, I have prayed for thee 
that thy faith fail not, and when you are converted and brought back, strengthen thy brethren. Uh, Peter becomes the foremost apostle uh, not by some mysterious uh, determination to make him the pope before there was a pope, but because he was the one that went through a great trial of faith and came back trusting and persevering in his faith as a model not just for all Christians, but even for his brethren, the apostles. That he was given that gift so that he might bless others thereby. Job goes through this trial that he might be an example unto us. That part of what God is doing doesn't just even relate to Job. That it relates to all who hear Job. As Peter, of all, excuse me, tells the Corinthians uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, all these things were written for our example. They happen to them, but they help us. That we contemplate, that we come to understand greater and more mysterious things. And so we come with this with an admonition and encouragement. We are subject to powers we cannot comprehend. If anything 2020 has taught us, it has taught us this, that we are subject to powers that we cannot comprehend. That there are things in the world that are flatly demonic. It's not to, as an excuse to, to um, wallow in our ignorance and not to trace out the human iniquity that, that demonic powers use. But it is, we need to call a spade a spade and we need to call Satan Satan and we need to call the devil the devil and things that are devilish, devilish. And this world right now we see clearly than we have in a long time that Satan still has power. But the one who holds all power, including, as Martin Luther so wonderfully put it, he who holds the devil's leash, has promised to you and myself good. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. And he does this in a couple of ways. Going back to our passage, we have the great accuser. How does Christ promise good to us in that regard? Well, he's defeated Satan. He resisted temptation where our father Abraham did not, or our father Adam did not. Uh, But more to the point... Uh, He died and became our surety. That on the cross, He delivered us uh, from our sins. We have paid the price of sin. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says. Why does he say it? Because our uh, sins have already been punished. If you go to Colossians, uh, Paul says it uh, even clearly and plainly in the context of the divine uh, and, and invisible world. In chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, And you being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him that is Christ, having forgiven all your trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took, us out, uh, took it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. He took all the condemnation, he nailed it to the cross. So when Christ said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's doing that on our behalf. God forsook us in forsaking Christ. 
but it couldn't hold. And Christ is risen again. And Paul writes, and having spoiled principalities and powers, and he's thinking of this invisible world there, and made show of them openly, triumphing over it. So that therefore in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. When the devil comes against you, his greatest weapon is accusation. And the greatest uh, foil of his weapon is your own guilt. But when he does it, like Martin Luther the Reformer would say, don't give him an ear. You point directly to Christ Jesus. He has paid me. There's nothing more to pay. What more can the devil require? And it's not that the devil has a right to require it anyway. He's not the executor of God's judgment. He is himself judged. So there's nothing to accuse anyone who is in Christ Jesus. Satan is robbed of his great weapon. But then also, because it's not just a passive sort of deliverance that we have in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just take upon himself our problem. He gives to us his Holy Spirit, the great comforter. And so Peter is able to say to us in 1 Peter chapter 5, 8 through 11, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour, and you have a duty to be sober and vigilant against him. Resist whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. The God of all grace, who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In Christ Jesus, we can resist the devil. Uh, and we have a great deal more than Job had in knowing the victory over the devil, in knowing where our hope uh, lies. Uh, Job in chapter 19, 25 uh, still has a, a germ of that same hope. I know that my Redeemer liveth and at the last he shall stand. And though my flesh be eaten by worms, yet I shall see him in the flesh face to face. If that is not an Old Testament confession of the resurrection, there is no confession of the resurrection in all of Scripture. Of that great hope he had in a Redeemer. And the hope that we know that Redeemer. We can put a name to that Redeemer. And we have his spirit now that we can also know the works of Satan in a way that Job apparently did not know. And resist him to the end. So yes, you and I are subject to awful things in the world. Uh, it shows us probably, if more than anything else, uh, the, the awfulness of sin in the first place. That God doesn't betray his justice when he gives Satan permission to go and afflict us. If we were innocent and good, and understand the integrity of Job does not say that he was innocent of all sin. But if we were innocent and good, it would not be right to inflict upon the world such. Or at least as far as we can conceive. But that's not our condition. And, and part of our own judgment is that, that Satan has a commission to come and inflict the world of sin, to bring upon the world the sin that it itself commits, uh, to, to hand them over and to harden them in that rebellion that they have already rebelled in. But we also see the greatness of Christ. 
and his love and his mercy and delivering us from it and also equipping us to be sober and vigilant, to fight this fight, not with the weapons of the world, but with that spiritual weapon that he's given us, faith in his word and prayer, uh, as he ends his epistle to the Ephesians. So be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion. But the God of all grace, who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered for a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And as we come before your table to remember the sacrifice of Christ, that great work whereby the worst of the devil's accusations was robbed from him, and he is chained by the power of the gospel, in which your people are protected and shielded, we ask that we would be, therefore, vigilant against his machinations, vigilant against his cruelty and malice, that we would be wary of every temptation, that we would resist steadfast, manfully, in the grace of Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so resisting, we ask that by your grace we would stand and persevere and come into that glorious reward of your merciful grace in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.